You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Before we jump into the actual text, let me just give you a real, real potted version of the kind of context around Mark's gospel. We know from tradition and and from history going back very, very early in church history that um, the author of the book was a guy named John Mark. And so that's where we get the title of the book, Mark. Um, John Mark wasn't a disciple of Jesus during Jesus' ministry. He became a Christian, and you can find him in the book of Acts. You'll see him as a companion of Paul and Barnabas. He's the reason Paul and Barnabas, these really great friends, end up falling out with one, one another. Because if you remember the series we did in Acts, John Mark kind of leaves them high and dry at one point, and Barnabas kind of wants to take him back, and Paul's like, no, nah, he's, he's burned his bridges, all right? You, There's much more to say. Go back to the series in Acts if you want to know more about that. But John Mark is the guy who wrote all of this down, who comprised the gospel, but it was actually Peter, the apostle Peter, who provided the content, which makes total sense, right? Peter was ostensibly the leader of Jesus' disciples, and he was one of the the three closest friends, the inner circle of Jesus along with John and James. And so Peter has all of the content. Um, He has all of the content to provide to put together this picture, this mosaic picture of Jesus' words and his works. And so he comes to John Mark probably in Rome, probably in the late 50s AD, and they put together this gospel. That's uh, that, that, that's probably as much as I, I need to say about the author. The, the, the style of the book, if you've never sort of read through it, the style is really interesting. As I said earlier, it's, like a, it's a bit like a docudrama. Like it, it's, it's a series of scenes um, knit together to make a whole narrative. And so um, this is what you need to know about John Mark. He's really careful. He's a very careful, precise, scholarly type of guy. I like to think that this is the kind of the reason he didn't want to go with Paul into really dangerous places on his mission journeys in Acts. It's just because he's a bit of a nerd, right? He just, he'd prefer to stay at home and write books. That's, it, that's not in the Bible. I just think that's what he's like. And so he's really, he's really careful. He's really precise about the details. But here's what you need to know. It's really important. He's not a 21st century modern author. He doesn't exist in the time after the Enlightenment, right? He's not, this is, he's not really too fussed about chronology. His big concern is theology. So as you read this, it's not like a modern biography where you start with the, where the, 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 the man or the woman was born and some, the, the, about their family of origin, and then you kind of work sequentially through their life. That's, that's not what Mark's trying to do. He didn't screw up. He didn't try in the first place. And it's like his, his biography is like the biographies of his day, right? It's obvious that he would write like the people of his day wrote, and they weren't concerned with chronology. They were concerned about making a point. That's not to say that what he's written isn't historical. It is. He's a very careful historian. He's just arranged this content to make very significant points and make them clearly. So he'll take a couple of things that happened, probably didn't happen sequentially, and put them together in order to really emphatically say, look, look at this. Look at this. So he'll put healings together that may not have happened on the same day, but he wants you to like really know Jesus can heal, right? 
this example plus this event plus this example, and you'll obviously um, often sandwich two ideas together to make a, a, a sort of connective tissue which leads us to a, a clear conclusion. So that's, that's his style. That's the way he's written this. It was the style of the day, obviously, and it's in keeping with that style, but it's also very particularly put together so that we would know beyond a shadow of doubt what he's talking about. Now, part of the reason for this is because he's writing to a very broad audience. He doesn't assume you know anything about Jewish history, about, um, about prophecy, about Messiah, like these really important concepts that you need to know in order to know who Jesus is. He doesn't assume you know this stuff, which is why it's so good for us in our culture, right? He's not assuming we know anything. He knows it's really important for you to know the Old Testament, but he doesn't assume you know all about it. And so he takes time to explain some of these things, which is really super helpful. As I said, the context for the, for the actual writing of the book is probably late 50s AD. So this is a very early historical document. Very, very early. Within a generation of the things that happen. Now, in our mind, we think if things aren't being live tweeted, then they're late, right? This is why newspapers are failing, because you've got to wait till the next day to find out what happened. What? What? You have to wait 12 hours? That's not the case. There is no live tweeting here. 20 years for, a, for an entire historical account to be written down about events that happened is astonishingly early. Most historical accounts we have of um, events in history like uh, the, uh, oh, what's an example? Like the conquest of Alexander the Great, hundreds of years written after the, the fact. Hundreds of years. With no, no one alive to verify the writings who was alive at the, uh, when the events themselves happened. In this case, people are alive. If Mark writes all this down and it didn't actually happen, people are there saying, uh-uh. That's Jesus, he made tables. That's about all he did, right? So that's really important. That should encourage us about the historical veracity, the accuracy of what Mark has written down. There's a little introduction to the book itself, but the most important stuff is not about the book as a piece of literature, but about who the book reveals to us, that one, that man being the Lord Jesus. And so I want to jump in now and just pull out a couple of key concepts, three key concepts about, from, this, from this book, all right? So starting with the first verse, Mark doesn't waste any time at all, ever, and he doesn't waste any time getting to the most important thing, right? In the first verse, check it out, Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the most important thing you need to know about his book. He puts it in the first verse. In fact, as many of you know, in ancient literature, the first sentence was the title of the book. So this is the title, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, read on if you dare. He's sort of laying down a challenge. This book is dangerous. Right? This, this is a book that's going to force you to reconsider some things about the nature of the universe. So if you're willing to step past the first verse, then come in, dive deep. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
It's astonishing to me how many people, how many Christians don't know how to answer the question, what is the gospel? This is 101, all right? This is, this is the first step. You need to know this. It's not a matter of being able to articulate something. It's a matter of knowing something to be true, okay? So the gospel, the gospel is good news. So the gospel, not a genre of music, right? It's, it's not people dressing up in nuns' outfits and clapping, right? That's not the gospel, The gospel is actually not a particularly Christian term, though it has become that today. This was a term used by people in antiquity, people of all faiths and beliefs. The gospel is an announcement. So, if you've ever watched that historically accurate film 300, right, about the Greeks, no, it was the Persians, coming and uh, trying to, um, like they did with every nation, this great superpower of the world, coming and trying to defeat the Greeks and the, and, and the, and the Greeks being able to defend themselves against um, this massive horde, right? When that happened, and there is a historical kind of event there somewhere, when that happened, when they were able to hold back these people and therefore save their women from being raped, their children from being killed, right? What happened was the very first thing that happened was the king sent out a gospel all over Greece. He sent out a good news. It's a, a, a gospel. Literally, what, what, in the Greek, the evangelist would take the gospel and share it with the people. In this case, the evangelist, which just means the, the gospeler, the, the gospeler would go and announce to the people, we have overcome our enemies, the, the land is safe and secure. This is good news. Everyone praise and worship the king. He has saved us. That's the gospel. And so Mark uses this word for the very same reason. He says, this is the announcement. This is what I've written. It's the gospel. It's the good news that the king has delivered us from all of our enemies. The king has come with his kingdom and he has not been overcome. He has indeed overcome. And we are participators in and beneficiaries of that victory. That's what it means. The gospel of Jesus Christ, literally Jesus the Messiah. So you know Christ just means Messiah, it means anointed one, it means king, it means, it means the promised one of God who would come to lead his people in victory. All in the first verse. This is just the beginning, Mark says, just the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And then he wants you to know within the first verse that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is the Son of God. This is what you need to know about Mark. He's really big into titles. I know in Australia we're not big into titles. Some of you from, from, from charismatic Pentecostal backgrounds call me Pastor Jono because, you, because people in those cultures value titles. Most of you don't because most Australians hate titles, Right? We're the egalitarian nation. We're the ones who, who thumbed our nose at the, at the monarchy, right? We, just, we, we, we don't want anyone to have any qualifications or accolades, right? So, so, so 
that, that's not the case in the first century, particularly in Hebrew culture. They, they value titles, and Mark is big into titles. So he'll, he'll give several meaningful titles to Jesus. One of them is Son of God. Now, you might put Jesus and Son of God together really plainly because you've heard it since Sunday school, but you need to know that for Mark, that's a significant thing that he's saying. He's saying Jesus Christ, that is, Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. And most of these titles have very deep roots in the Old Testament. So in your small groups, it'll be worthwhile just checking out the, when you come across a title like Son of God or Son of Man or Prince of Peace or one of these things, it might be worth just going, hey, let's look it up, let's Google it, let's find out where is this coming from in the Old Testament because Mark wants you to know all of this is a fulfillment of what God has always been doing through salvation history. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And he goes on in verse 2 and 3 to make the connection to that old covenant history that he really wants us to know. So he says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, he doesn't just quote it and assume that you know it, which you would if you were a Jew. He says, no, okay, you need to know Greeks, you, you Australians. This is from Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. And this is what he said about Jesus, though he never met him because it was 600 years beforehand. This is what he wrote. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of God. Make his path straight. And, and, who, and this is what Isaiah is talking about there, though he didn't know it. He's talking about John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus the Messiah. John the baptizer making a way for Jesus the Messiah, and we're not going to read through that section about John, but you'll see that was his ministry. That's what he had one idea, he had one thing in mind prepare the way for the Messiah. He's here. And all of this was the fulfillment of the culmination of the climax of hundreds of years of Old Testament prophecy and. Billions of years, well, eternal, we're going back to eternity in terms of God's plan of salvation for his people. This is huge. We're three verses in, we've got eternity wrapped up in this. Jesus is Messiah, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Son of God, but... At this point, at least, Mark knows that the people of God don't understand that the Messiah, the Lord, the Son of God, would also be a suffering servant, would also be a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Their view of the Messiah, if you just put yourself in the Hebrew context of the day, their view of the Messiah is a political uh, leader, Someone who would come like the kings of their day and liberate them. In this case, liberate them from their, their, their Roman overlords who are oppressing them and who are, who are restricting them and limiting them in their worship. The Messiah would come and, and liberate them from these Gentile dogs. 
What Mark reveals throughout the course of his narrative is that, yes, Jesus is the Lord, but he's also our Savior. This is something we really need to get straight, all right, for ourselves. The, the audience that Mark is writing to has a lot to overcome before they can get this. They've got hundreds of years of historical expectation that Jesus would be a political leader, that he would have an earthly kingdom, right? That he would save them from their earthly enemies. He's got to overcome all of that. And you see, Jesus' own disciples don't get it over and over and over again. They think he's going to come and, and establish an earthly kingdom and they want to be part of that earthly kingdom. They just don't get it. And so Mark's got a lot to overcome historically for them to understand this. But here's the thing. All through church history, Christians have failed to come to terms with this. That Jesus is both Lord and Savior. He's the Messiah and the sacrifice. He's God and man. God and man. And this failure to see this truth and hold it together led Jesus' disciples to think that he was just coming to establish an earthly kingdom. And that it has led Jesus' disciples over the generations and millennia to misapprehend what it means to be a Christian. So here's, here's what's going on. If you think Jesus is Lord and not Savior, if you think he's king and not sacrifice, then he becomes like a, a political leader, just like he was for these first disciples. And you're led to see Jesus as the kind of figurehead for your particular way of seeing the world, the way you think the world should be organized, politics, ethics, right? The, the things of this nature. It leads to some of the, the more radical strains of liberation theology, right? Jesus is just someone who's here to set us free from the evils of this life. It's a very temporal, this-worldly view of who Jesus is, and it's incomplete, that's what you get if you just see Jesus as Lord. In our circles, we're much more prone to just see Jesus as, as Savior. Jesus saves me from my sins. That's what he does. He presents me with a fire insurance policy against hell, and I take that and go down the front and get prayed for and then just go about my life as I would any other way, right, whether he's there or not. He has done his job. And so we come probably three times a month or twice a month to church and we say thanks for doing that job for us and then go and live life every other which way, right? That's Jesus is saviour, but he's not Lord. He's not king. He doesn't expect anything from me. The big theological word for some of this understanding is antinomianism, right? Like Jesus is all grace, there's no law. He's all forgiveness, he doesn't expect anything from me. Nothing could be further from the truth. Mark will batter into your head in this gospel this notion of discipleship that will cost you everything. It will cost you everything at the same time that it's given to you freely. These are the kinds of juxtapositions that we have with Jesus. He is both king and sacrifice. He is, he is our Messiah and Savior, right? And you have, you have to hold those two things together, otherwise Jesus doesn't make sense. Or 
you believe in a Jesus that doesn't exist. So there's the gospel, right? That's one of the most important concepts in this book. God has come. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus, and he has made a way for us to be reconciled to God forever. Second key word I want us to look at is this this idea of disciple or discipleship. As I just said, the the theme of discipleship is huge. Mark uses the disciples as a bad example of discipleship over and over again. Remember, Peter's providing the content. So in this, Peter's making fun of himself. He, He knows that he looks bad in this gospel. He's done that deliberately. He wants you to know this is, this is what it's like to follow Jesus. It's a, it's a constant bumbling. It's a faithlessness, right? It's a, it's a growing in understanding. None of us arrive at the destination from the beginning. But this whole concept of discipleship demanding all of our life is presented from the very beginning. So check it out. You, this, this famous little scene uh, in the life of Jesus and his disciples. So you pick it up at verse 14 to 20. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe the good news. Jesus' first message. Primary importance. The message he still speaks to us today. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. As he passed alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people, or I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Jesus calling his disciples for the very first time and this astonishing scene where they simply drop their nets, drop their livelihood, drop their entire identity as human beings and follow him. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means dropping everything and following him. Does he give us the joy of enjoying life and family and marriage and food and drink and sunshine and Australia? And like, yes. But it means dropping all of those things down and having him as our primary obedience. This is the interesting thing about disciples, right? We we think about disciples and this becomes our kind of prototype. This is what discipleship was about. But this is actually completely um, 
the opposite of what discipleship was about in its context. So let's just go back into the first century, and here's what happens. If you're a Jewish boy, you go to school, just like my little boy Judah this past week went to school for the first time, had his little uniform on, um, picked him up after his uh, second day and said, how'd it go, little buddy? And, and he, he gave me the, the gospel, right? He announced the good news. He's a little evangelist. He came with the good news, and he said, here's the good news. He said, it, it, the day was great. I've got lots of friends. I finished. I think he thought he'd finished school, but so we're still working on that. I finished school, and he said, I'm astonished. And, um, and that was his gospel. That was his good news. So this is what happened. The same thing for Jewish boys in the first century. They went along to school. They would go to school until they were 13, if they weren't doing great academically, and by academically I mean they were learning the Torah, learning uh, the Mishnah, learning uh, all of the relevant kind of Hebrew documents that they would need to learn in order to understand God's word, right? They would learn that up until 13. If they weren't doing so well, they'd go and find a trade, like fishing or carpentry. They would go and find a trade. If they were doing well, they would continue on further education beyond 13 years old. All the kids are wishing they were in first century Israel, right? Th- finish at 13. I-, I tell you what, it's probably not a bad idea for some kids. Anyway, that's, another, that's a whole other story. You would go on further education. And, it- and if you did really well, if you could memorize the Torah and know its theological significance, then you would be the first ones picked by the best rabbis to be their disciples. And you would spend the rest of the the rabbi's life following in his footsteps until such time that he died, and you would then become the rabbi who chose the next round of the very highest quality disciples. That's how the discipleship thing worked. You see this in Paul's life, by the way. Remember when he recounts, I think it's in Acts 22, when he talks about the fact that he was a disciple of Gamaliel? Gamaliel was this famous rabbi. Obviously, Paul was the cream of the crop in his further education. He didn't go and become a tradesman. He went on, and then he was picked by the most famous rabbi of the time. He was just kind of talking about his credentials at that point. And yet, what does Jesus do? Rabbi Jesus, what does he do? He goes to to the dropouts. Again, just read it in the first century context. You read this for the first time, you're like, what is wrong with this guy? He he didn't go to Princeton and get the top graduates. he's, He's gone, literally gone to people in boats whose hardest job for the day was mending their nets and getting them in order, right? That was the the most intellectual acumen they needed to know was how to fix the nets, right? He went to those people. What does this say about the kind of people that Jesus welcomes as disciples? Not as second-class followers, I mean, as disciples. What does this mean for you and me? You know how many times I hear people say, and it and it started to annoy me now. How many times I hear people say, I would get involved in this ministry at church or I would talk to my coworkers about what I believe, but I'm just, I'm not, I'm not that articulate. 
Uh, I haven't been to Bible college. You know, I don't, I don't know verse and chapter from, from memory. Who cares? Who did Jesus go to? The dropouts. The last time these guys did anything articulate was when they were 12. And they were 12-year-old boys. You know how articulate 12-year-old boys are? Not very. If you get two sentences put together, you're winning. Right? And yet he goes to them and says, follow me. Be my disciples. Be like me. I love what this says about us and about the kind of capacity we have to change the world irrespective of our background or our, I don't know, whatever, our acumen. Jesus is calling people from every walk of life and he doesn't give a rip about how many letters you've got after your name. He doesn't. Letters are great. Learning is great. But it doesn't qualify you to be a disciple Jesus does. And so he calls all of us. And the calling is not just to learn stuff. Sit down, listen, take some notes. The calling is an all of life, all about Jesus calling. This is one of my most fundamental beliefs about Christianity. And let me just share with you my own perspective. I do not and have never understood nominal Christianity. To me, that is a contradiction in terms. When you put it on the census floor form, you're a Christian, and that's it. That's the summary of what you, that you identify as Christian. Or you come on a Sunday, and that's it. Discipleship is a dropping of your nets, leaving of your father, and following the Messiah. That's what discipleship is. I so resonate. One of the first things I read when I first became a Christian, I'm so grateful to God for Clive Staples Lewis because he wrote so much of what I just I soaked up um, when I was just a, a little baby, like little, little, little sapling Christian. Um, here's what he says about Christianity. One must keep on pointing out. You have to keep doing this because Christians don't get it. One must must keep on pointing out that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. What do most Australians think about Christianity? What's their view? How do they judge it? Moderately important. The truth is, it's either worthless or of infinite importance. Jesus' call to discipleship is either a keep on walking weirdo or dropping nets and giving your life to him. That's the only options. These guys drop their Nets, and then the rest of the gospel is about how dumb they are and how gracious their teacher is. And these high school dropouts, primary school dropouts, who don't get it over and over and over again, go on to alter the course of the history of the planet forever. Gospel, disciple, 
and authority. Oh my word, I'm out of time. <laughs> All right, what can we do? Let's do. All right, let's at least do 21 to 27, okay? 21 to 27. This will give us a snapshot. We'll pick it up again next week. We're going to talk about authority again next week. They went to Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue. That's Jesus, entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished. Ah, that's just like Judah. Astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. Jesus has an authority that shocks people. It's an otherworldly authority, an extraordinary authority, a supernatural authority. He has this authority because he is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And in the first eight chapters of this book, Mark is going to over and again establish Jesus' credentials, establish his authority as God's anointed one. The second half of the book, 9 to 16, is mainly about his suffering and about the salvation that he brings. The first half is all about establishing who is this man. What is this? That's their response. What is this? What the hell is going on? Hell obeys this guy. You're going to see it in the next chapter, and it really jumps out at you because Jesus not only heals a man like he did here, but he forgives his sins. That's something God does. It's the first step to the cross. It's the thing that eventually gets him killed. Authority. What is this? This authority, this power that we've never experienced before. This guy has something. We don't understand it yet. And the amazing thing you need to know about Jesus' authority is that it's not this kind of aloof, removed authority. Just go back, 139. He went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him. 
be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. What's going on there? There is dynamite power, authority over nature. You're going to see Jesus has authority over nature. He has authority over Satan and demons. He has authority over disease. He has authority to speak God's word. He has authority to reveal who God is. He has all of this authority, but it's not removed. It's not aloof. It's not like a government who just from government house tells you what to do. No, he is with you. He extends a hand to the leper. Why is that important? Lepers were unclean. If you touched one, not only would you likely get the disease, but you would be made unclean. That is, you cannot worship God. You cannot go near the temple, right? All of this baggage is wrapped up in this tiny little two, three verse pericope, little scene. And Mark wants us to know Jesus is not just authoritative, he is compassionate. He touches the leper. What does that mean? Jesus is now unclean unless he is the cleanser, not only of your skin, but of your soul. He not only heals the man's body, but his very soul. So his cleanliness overcomes this man's uncleanness. This is who Jesus is. This is the nature of his authority. He doesn't just have dynamite power. He has intimate compassion on those who desperately need his touched. If you are here this morning and you feel like an untouchable, someone who God can't reach, then you're wrong. Jesus this morning is here to touch you, to heal you, to welcome you into the family of God. He did it then, and he's doing it now. This idea of authority is, again, just like disciple, just like gospel. It's huge in Mark's book. As I said, it's going to be coming up next week. Let me just read you a little bit from, again, from the series guide. I'm, I'm going to be really promoting this to you at least this week. It says this in, in the guide. Throughout this series, you will see that Jesus has authority to teach God's word, heal ailments, forgive sins, drive out demons, bring dead people back to life, and reveal what God is like to the world. And the next sentence should be, and he is still doing it today. Praise the Lord. I want to finish with a quote, not from Mark, but with his contemporary gospel writer from John. And I think John speaks for all of the gospel writers when he says this. This is what we need to remember from this point to the end of this series. Here's what he says in his own gospel in chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs, right? Many other signs beyond the healing of a leper and beyond the casting out of a demon. He performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we go on this journey through Mark's gospel, that just like Jesus' disciples, you would take us from humble beginnings and make us the kinds of 
of disciples who would change the world around us forever. As we see Jesus ministering in authority and compassion, Lord, so change us that we too would minister to those around us with authority and compassion, all of which comes from you by your Spirit. So we ask that during this time we have together, you would be speaking clearly to us, you would be changing and transforming us, that we would know that Jesus is God and man. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.